Hello and welcome to We're Watching What, or in the case of today, we're interviewing who? I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and I'm so excited to welcome Jude Brownville. Jude is a supervising animator on Pixar's Soul, which you may have just watched. She was a directing animator on Cars 3. She's been at Pixar for over 10 years now. She's worked on Incredibles 2, The Good Dinosaur, Inside Out, Brave, Cars 2. Before she was at Pixar, she was a supervising animator in England, and she earned a bachelor's and master's over there and then came to the US for her Pixar job. I've known her for around 10 years as well. I am so excited to talk to her about this film. It is helpful if you have seen the film. We don't really spoil much of it, but I just wanna give a heads up that we do talk about some of the sequences that occur later in the film. So it's a good idea to have seen it before listening to this, just so it'll give you a frame of reference. Soul is currently streaming on Disney+. And just a quick thing to note before we dive in. So animation in a feature film, or I guess even a short film, is really responsible for the performances of the character. Yes, you have the actors who are doing the voices, providing a lot of the base of that, but what you're seeing on screen is what the animators are responsible for. However, they are not responsible for things like the look of the characters, the design of them, the design of the world. Usually there's a different department doing, you know, all the visual effects as well, but what the animators are doing is really acting through these CG puppets, essentially, as the actors behave. So the voice performance might be evoking one emotion, but the physical performance, which is provided by the animators could be doing a completely different thing in order to tell the story that they're trying to tell. Also, story, totally different department, right? But animators are able to add so much to it through these performances. A lot of it is the unsaid stuff that you're seeing. And again, just providing that context because there is so much to talk about with Soul, but this is focused on the scope of what the animation department does. And without further ado, here's We're Watching What? Could you please explain to someone like, let's say my dad, who is a total film industry, it's just noob, what a supervising animator at Pixar does. A supervising animator is kind of responsible for the animation team as a whole, making sure that everyone on the team is happy, they have everything they need to animate their shots, they are assigned their tasks for the weeks and months ahead, and just that everything's kind of running smoothly, and we're getting on screen the vision of the director. So we work with the director, and we're also working with other departments too, so we're kind of like the connection between the characters, team, and lighting, sim. So we kind of work on that level as well, making sure that all departments are, are talking to each other. And how early does a supervising animator come on a show? You know, it varies from, from film to film. I was on, I think, I was on two years before the film was originally due to come out. But I think it depends. It's like right. some, some supervising animators are on a lot earlier. Some I think two years is probably kind of like the minimum um, because we definitely had to go fast. So um, yeah, two years is probably good rule of thumb. Maybe three would be nice. So for Soul, yes. you see the story. You see, I assume early on, you see two utterly different worlds and animation styles and all that stuff. And then you get the soup gig. What runs through your brain? Uh, how are we going to do that? That's the biggest problem, I think. I, if, I mean, I wanted to be on this film because of a lot of reasons. One, because it was it was about where we come from, where our personalities come from, and it had it had an African American lead, which was really exciting as well. And then watching the screening itself and seeing yes, these two worlds, and then within the soul world, these soul characters and these characters that were called counselors that were just made up of a line that scared me as well. It almost felt like we were making two movies in one. They were two completely different worlds and two completely different sets of characters. So we really just kind of had to concentrate. We started with the human world first because we were like, we've done humans, we'll start with that. We'll, you know, get that done. But even that doesn't go as smoothly as you would expect. And then we tried to concentrate on the soul world, but then we had the souls, like what does a soul look like? What is a soul? It could be anything. 
Yeah. So that was a problem in itself, just a really fun challenge in a way. What does it look like? The fact that it can be anything just kind of made it exciting, but also difficult to hone in on something. And then we had this other set of characters called the counselors who are described as like the universe dumbing itself down so humans can understand it. They are the universe itself showing itself in a form that kind of looks like a human, but it's made up of a line. And when you rotate it, there's a moment where it looks like a human and then it doesn't. And there was talk about like, should we be animating this in 2D or um, how are we going to actually do this? Because you could just, you could probably take a, a spline and move the points around and get to the shape you want. But then how do you actually animate that? So rigging these characters was a big technical challenge as well so we got through it though yeah turned out pretty good <laughs> so I, I also want to talk about the two worlds interact at one point and that is that was bonkers to me right because you have this character who essentially has no constraints and then our quote human world and so I know it's only a little bit of the film but that to me I was like mind blown in terms of how much of a technical nightmare that must have been and like what guidance do you give when those sequences come up. Are you referring to like when when Terry, Terry, Terry to Earth, yeah. uh, terrorizes the real world? <laughs> yeah, that was a fun sequence because, you know, up until that point, Terry had just been animated in the soul world. And I mean, we I guess we treated it like it was in the soul world, except she had to disguise herself in her own background. So she would take the form of a, a wire or, you know, the bricks in the wall. And so obviously that required bit of preparation so that we the animators knew what they were playing with in terms of what the background would be and she had to slide along in what we called a stunt line which was really you know just a spline and then we could switch it out quickly and then she could raise out of this line form into her character shape uh, in any way you wanted her to because you had full control over her silhouette and I think the animators had a lot of fun just thinking of different ways that she could travel through the environments that they were given in their shots and how she could pop up, look around, sniff something, look at something. There's a shot where her hand turns into a magnifying glass. You know, it was just a lot of brainstorming, a lot of fun. You know, you don't often get to animate a character that you can actually manipulate their like, form. So it was fun to see what animators would kind of come up with. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. What do you think the biggest change for the animation department was since the show started and what the actual version we see on screen was? Did anything in terms of guidance change? You know, every show goes through changes and iterations and evolutions. Did anything major be like, okay, actually this character now behaves in this way, go back and scrap everything? Or was it pretty well set in these sets of rules from the start? I'm trying to think and I, I mean, I can't really think of anything. We, you know, well, production really went for less than a year in animation. It, it felt like. So we kind of had to know what we were doing when we started. Of course, whenever you start this, you don't know who the characters really are. You're sort of, you're hearing snippets from art and, and story and the director is describing their backstory. You know, Pete and Kemper were in our dailies telling us who these characters were. So we're just, and we're trying to figure out how they move from the very first sequence. And I think the first sequence we animated was him, Joe, running to his audition and then playing for the first time, which is a really great sequence to start with. It's complicated because we have the added complexity of playing instruments as well, but it really allowed us to dig into like, who is Joe? How does he move? And this is him in his form, in his kind of default, I want to be a jazz musician, I'm kind of awkward. And this is a dream I really want. So we kind of got to figure him out in his default state instead of, you know, like in, in another version of him. So that was good in a way that we could start with that. But for the most part, we just animated the sequences as they came along and tried to figure out the 
characters as we got to them. Nothing really changed. How relieved were you that you had a musical background going into this? Well, I wouldn't say I had. A, I have a musical background. You, you are musically literate. Like, you are... I, well, I appreciate music and I have played instruments in the past not very well. Yeah. But, but you also sing. And- yeah, I mean, it, I think it helped. And we definitely asked the animators, who wants to work on the musical sections? Please tell us if you have a skill and interest, you know, a desire to work in those sequences. And people would raise their hands and say, yes, I want to I wanna work on, you know, Joe playing the piano, etc., etc." But we also, like, had to rely very heavily on reference. We made right. sure that... The doc crew went to the recording session when John Batiste and his band were there and we had multiple camera angles and we had the help of someone down at Disney. Somebody took down the music that John played on the piano and into MIDI form, MIDI notation. And then someone in the um, characters department created a tool that would like transpose that MIDI data onto the piano and the keys would light up because just looking at like John's reference of his fingers, often it was blurry and you had you had no idea which finger was hitting which key. So adding in this MIDI data really helped us know, oh, it was, it's that key because it would light up. So the animators would definitely know, oh, that's the key to press. Because obviously we're always trying to hit realism. We wanted it all to be accurate. We wanted someone who could play the piano to watch it and go, yeah, they... You hit all the right notes. So that was the goal. So actually, in terms of those sequence, obviously there's the technical accuracy, but hitting those emotional right notes, right? Because you're balancing an inherently visual medium in animation with the music in those moments that's so important. So, you know, were people going overboard? Did you have to be like, hey, dial it back? Are people over animating? Are people under animating? Like, what is that guidance like? There was definitely an arc that we wanted to track throughout that sequence in particular where Joe is auditioning. Um, He starts off very nervous because he's meeting his idol, Dorothea Williams, and she is less than kind of gracious to him because she's like, oh, now we're down to middle school band teachers. And so he's a little taken aback. And she just immediately starts playing and he doesn't know what she's playing. So we wanted to get that feeling across that he is a fish out of water. You know, he's nervous. He's a little bit awkward. He's fumbling around. um, And his posture is a bit sort of, you know, reflective of that. But then we wanted to track it so that all the way through that next set of shots to the point where he goes into the zone, he's in his groove, like he opens up, he becomes more fluid, less rigid, and it sort of shows in the animation. So it was definitely a lot of conversation in dailies between, I think it was three animators that spanned the course of those shots to make sure that we weren't getting too relaxed too soon and we weren't getting too into it too soon. Or Do you know what I mean? So that we could track that. And uh, it would have that nice flow from being stiff and awkward to like totally in control and in the zone. Let's talk about 22 because I love Tina Fey. I know you love Tina Fey. We both love Tina Fey. This is a character like Joe, obviously, that's a character who's grounded in humanity. And we we get that, right? But 22 is this sort of empty palette. How do you make, first of all, it's just a blob, right? And and there were some moments that was really interesting in terms of being able to defy physics. I think I read somewhere that these are characters who, since they haven't been to Earth yet, like they aren't required to act like humans. But how, how do you just sort of shape that character and balance it with Tina's performance, especially because she's not supposed to be the most likable thing in the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> She, yeah. How do you make a movie, Jude? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, Walk me through a couple of years of your life. Well, we, we always talked about with 
22 that because she is so against going to earth she is on like mentor number I don't know whatever she's had so many mentors trying to convince her that it's worth it going to earth and she is completely against it because she's looked to earth and gone I don't see the point it's much better up here but because she's had all of these mentors these iterations of like this is what's so great about earth she's learned a lot about earth and she's she's sort of started to evolve a little bit like kind of because like new souls are very sort of cute and small small and round and they're all very similar but 22's her design was deliberately evolved a little bit so she started to look slightly more human like like she can grow legs and she has a little tuft of hair and teeth and so she kind of has is a bit more sophisticated in her movements than the new souls and they just kind of like bob around and kind of bump into each other because they're just so new and excitable about going to earth or she's very cynical and she's just like no i don't want to go so we just kind of treated her kind of like i mean i guess Tina Fey is very similar in in kind of character and say like I watch a lot of Thirty Rock. You know, it's a good excuse to like do that kind of research. It's research. But it's research. You gotta rewatch it. It's that kind of like um, you know the attitude of boy. Um, it, it, you know, we watch a lot of her voice recordings and try to just get a bit of Tina Fey in it. You know, I mean, she can break the rules of physics. There's a, she turns into a pancake at one point and splits in two and. All sorts of things. And there was talk at the very beginning that she would do that a lot more often. But yeah, it was she, always, she finds it way. <laughs> always driven by the story. And, and right. generally she's the main story point for 22, I think, is that she's kind of lazy and a bit cynical. And, and lazy people just don't bother too much. So she's just like, whatever. She sometimes puts her arms away because she doesn't need to, to use them. Lazy or efficient? I'd like to think. <laughs> I think efficient. Yeah, I'd go with that instead. Which character do you admire the most and why? Ooh. Not necessarily resemble, but admire. Admire. Well, I'd say someone like Libba. I think she has been like the head of the household and she running her tailor shop, you know, holding it down so that her husband could follow his dreams and then, then his, so that her son could follow his dreams and making that money and doing right by her family. And, I, you know, she's obviously done a really good job of it. And that's, uh, you know, I admire her for that sort of willingness to support the people in her life. Yeah, I would also say she had a great capacity for change. <laughs> exactly. She does. She, you know, when, when Joe finally is open with her about what he wants in life, she is able to hear him, which is a really nice moment. I had a mini existential crisis in the middle of this film. So I'm going to go with my existential questions. Mm -hmm. If you had to describe yourself as an instrument, what would it be and why? Oh, <laughs> if I had to describe myself as an instrument and why, I mean, that's a tough one. I'm trying to think of instruments now. I've got your brass, your strings, your pianos, your... Probably know, like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe just a guitar. Because they're not too mm. loud or they, they can be quite melodic, but I, I don't know. This is There's also question. varieties, right? They have range. Like They have range. They can kind of, yeah. you know, they can um, carry a song, but they're not loud and in your face. Yeah, fair enough. I would, I would say that's an accurate description. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, and let's say you can taste it, but it has no caloric impact, what would it be and why? Wow. Hmm. One cuisine or one just one food? One food. Like, you mean like fries or? Yeah. Oh, fried chicken. I knew that was going to be the answer. I wasn't sure, but I was like, I think she's going to go fried chicken. 
Who are some of the mentors you would hope that your soul might have had in the great before? Hmm. Theoretically, they could still be alive now. Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. I've never thought about that at all. I told you I had an existential crisis in the middle of this film <laughs> that I've been thinking about. <laughs> wow. What did you come up with? I came up with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Jim Henson. Oh, oh Carrie Fisher. I would have liked Carrie Fisher as a, oh. you know, great, great before. Yeah. Maybe like George Takei. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Probably somebody animation related and somebody musical, maybe. Aretha. Ooh. That's a good one. It was actually, we had a brain trust screening on the day she died. <laughs> no, it was like, you know, it was like, well, it was sort of nice. Like, not nice, but like, the Queen it's of Soul. Poetic. I feel like it's poetic. The Queen of you know, Soul it's like a, passed yeah. and we got to watch our film Soul and it was like, oh. I'm really glad I got to see her before she died. That's, yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. One of the things that kind of stood out to me about this is that I, I feel like we don't see animated films about adult protagonists that often. Like I was trying to think, I was like, maybe The Incredibles, but to me that's more about like the family unit than maybe Bob or Helen. Did that come into it at all? Like that we have to make this adult, essentially it seems like single man likable to a wide family audience? I don't know for sure. It's probably a question for Pete and Kemp. But, I, you know, there was always this idea that this character had to be pursuing his dream for so long that you know even as an audience member you'd be like oh maybe you should give up on this you know because take the job yeah take yeah. the teaching job yeah exactly he gets given this like amazing opportunity like to have security for for a life or a long time from this the school that he teaches at and i guess you'd have to you know you want the audience to be like, what are you doing? Just take it. Be happy. So he was always that age. And we always knew that the soul world would bring a lot of the fun and the cute and the, the gags and the, you know. Zaniness. The zaniness that w would appeal to younger age groups. And so there was never talk like, how do we make him more appealing to young people? The story kind of told us who he needed to be and that's who we made him. What do you think the biggest lesson you learned on this film was? I think we had such a great team of people working on the film. And I think the biggest lesson I learned was to be okay in just like stepping back and letting people do what they do because they're going to do an awesome job, you know? Trust? <laughs> Trust, Trust is the word here. <laughs> yeah. But the last time we did this officially, uh, you were a directing animator and now you're a supervising mm. animator. And so you, now you're in a position of giving guidance. Like obviously as a directing animator you are as well, but you're getting guidance from the soup and then the director. Now you are kind of the next level up. How, how did that impact your kind of experience, highs, lows? I was the first person to be on the animation team. And it meant that I could sort of set it up how I hoped it would go. That makes sense. I wasn't sort of... Uh, executing someone else's vision for the animation team. We, we, as a leadership team, would talk about how we wanted the experience to be for our team, what were the most important values, things like that. And so it was really nice to be a part of that and to encourage that. What was the question again? <laughs> Just sort of like leadership on the show, your experience as yeah. it, because you know you're also in this essentially mentorship position, right? You are you are a teacher. You have to you are responsible for teaching this whole department how to function on the mm -hmm. show as a cooperative group. Yeah, I mean, what I did love doing was trying to encourage other people to step out of their comfort zone. That was quite rewarding. Being able to choose our own set of directing animators and then to assign work to people 
and, and be able to encourage them and say, yeah, you can do this. You got this. That was really rewarding. Did it change your approach to feedback at all? I guess, you know, when I was a directing animator, I never really had to have too many tough conversations because I, you know, would always fall to the supervisor if that needed to happen. So on this show, you know, those kind of responsibilities come to the supervisor. I'm not saying we had to have difficult conversations, but, um, you know, there are definitely things that you can't just pass on to other people. You just got to get on and do it. Definitely, it was a good experience to become a supervising animator. Yeah, what advice would you give for people who are seeking out like opportunities in this industry, right? Because, hmm. you know, there there is something about sticking your neck out and saying like, hey, I'd like to apply for this role, especially in a what has traditionally been a somewhat male-dominated industry. Yeah, yeah I mean, I always felt like I didn't want to be, we all know that there's not that many women in leadership positions. It's getting better, but it, it was, um, you know, not 50-50 at all. And I felt like I can't complain about that fact if I'm not willing to step up, put my name in the hat and sign up and do it. That's why I did. I wanted to make sure that there were women in leadership positions. And and then Soul in itself was definitely a project that made me want it even more. But I mean, since then, you know, I will encourage other women to go for positions. And the majority of people don't want to because they don't think they're ready. And that's not true. Most people are ready. You just have to put your name in the hat and do the interview and just see what happens. And you'll realize along the way that actually you kind of want it. And actually you probably can do it. Just do it. Nike. No. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Well, speaking of diversity and representation, you know, how how do you make sure you honor the diversity of the story with the voice actors and et cetera when you are in the soul world? Well, the designs of the um, mentors and the, right? Yeah, and like Joe and 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 uh, the what are they, what are they called again? Like Moonwind and Co. Oh, yeah, the um, the Mystics, the Mystics Without Borders. Yeah. Yes, I mean uh, very early on, on, Pete wanted to make sure that our film was incredibly diverse, including in the Soul world. So a lot of effort was made with the art team to design these souls to be icons of the humans that they represent. So every soul has like different hairstyle different accessories different you know head shape different body shape in order to try and make it a, a diverse scene when you're looking at a bunch of these mentors on the slidewalk so um it was more of a visual design thing than an animation thing fair enough and very last question is do you have a favorite sequence i know you're not supposed to have favorites but <sighs> either as an audience member or as someone who had to work on the film I, I really like audition when the music kicks in and uh, we really get to hear the band play. I think that's a really fun sequence. And I guess I, nostalgic because it was the first sequence we worked on. So I'm very proud. Very defining. One. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm very proud of you for this film. I know it's a cheesy thing to say, oh, but thanks. I'm just, I'm very proud of your success on this. And it's a great movie. Yeah. So- Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. That has been it for this episode. Thank you so much to Jude for her time. You can find her on Twitter at Jude Brownville. And if you're interested or are already studying or working in animation, she's actually a tutor at Anim Focus. A huge thank you to Emily for helping set this up. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love it if you could leave a rating or a review or even consider subscribing. 